Republican Congressman Liz Cheney has lost her bid for re-election, but don't count her out as a high-profile political figure. She has said she will do whatever it takes to make sure Donald Trump does not get elected president again. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, August 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, an investigation into so-called failure to protect laws and how abuse survivors can end up serving more time than their abusers serve. A new law aimed at addressing climate change also includes lots of money for oil and gas companies, and that's a cause for concern for low-income Americans who live near refineries. A lot of those projects are going to harm our community. So for us, it feels like what the bill is given with one hand, it's taken with the other. Also, the agency overseeing organ transplants is under fire. It's 401 News Headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former Vice President Mike Pence is pushing back against calls from fellow Republicans to defund the FBI. As he was speaking at a New Hampshire political event attended by many presidential hopefuls, Pence condemned GOP threats made against law enforcement officers in the aftermath of the FBI's court-authorized search of former President Donald Trump's Florida state last week. He said holding leadership accountable is fair, but attacking the rank and file is not. During a question and answer period, Pence was asked about the House Select Committee's investigation into last year's pro-Trump insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more on that. Pence was asked if he would be agreeable to an invitation from the House January 6th committee. If there was an invitation to participate, I would consider it. Pence added that it was unprecedented for a vice president to testify on Capitol Hill, though one sitting vice president has testified before. He also said he would have to reflect on his, quote, unique role as vice president if there was a formal invite from the committee. Pence's aides were featured in several of the committee's hearings throughout the summer. He oversaw the congressional count of electoral votes on January 6th, and Trump supporters threatened to kill Pence as Trump pressured him to illegally overturn the results. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Fresh off an expected primary defeat in Trump country, Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney tells NBC she'll decide in the coming months if she's going to make a run for the White House. The vice chair of the committee investigating the January 6th attack is vowing to keep fighting to block the former president from ever running for office again. Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has wrapped up hours of testimony before a special grand jury in Atlanta. It's unclear what the former New York City mayor had said after he was informed he was a target of the jury's criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention revealed a new vision for the agency today. NPR's Ping Wong reports the shakeup is an acknowledgment of the CDC's inadequate response to COVID. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, says the agency did not meet expectations when the pandemic hit, despite preparing for 75 years. To be frank, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes, she said, in a video shared with staff and reviewed by NPR. Walensky announced sweeping changes to the organization's structure with the goal of sharing scientific findings and data faster, crafting policies people can understand, and overhauling the agency's culture, less academic and more action-based. The changes are meant to create a nimble, modernized agency that leads instead of lags. Health experts like the sound of it, but they caution that past restructuring didn't fix all the agency's problems, and there's a lot to be seen in how it plays out. Ping Huang, NPR News. 
The Nasdaq has closed down one and a quarter percent. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins is expressing concern after Boston Children's Hospital said some of its workers have received death threats. It says an online harassment campaign has targeted the hospital after social media critics mistakenly concluded the hospital performs hysterectomies on transgender children. It does not. Rollins tells WBR's Radio Boston people are entitled to their feelings and can use appropriate channels to disagree with things. But when it crosses into the level of threats, um, that is when we are, potenti- we are potentially going to have a law enforcement response to this incident. And we have seen people threatening online. Boston Children's Hospital has run a trans health care unit for youth since 2007. Boston police say they're investigating the reports of threats made at the hospital. A construction accident is under investigation in Boston's Seaport District. Suffolk Construction says a piece of equipment fell off the outside of a building it's working on. It landed on the roof of a vehicle this afternoon on Summer Street. The driver was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Federal workplace safety investigators were called to respond, and Suffolk has shut down work at the site to conduct a review. Unionized workers at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams plan to go on a one-day strike Friday. The museum will remain open during that strike. As WBUR's Amelia Mason reports, workers cite stalled negotiations over pay. The union wants to raise the minimum wage of its workers to nearly $20 an hour over three years. But the museum says there's no budget for guaranteed annual raises. Union worker Maro Elliott says the museum's proposal falls short of a living wage. They have made it seem as though there needs to be a choice made between supporting programming and the artists and supporting workers which I think is a very unfair comparison to be making. A museum spokesperson says its contract proposals are, quote, equitable and address the root causes of employees' concerns. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. In the forecast clouds, some passing showers today and overnight tonight. Lows tonight about 64 degrees. Tomorrow turning partly sunny and milder should make it to about 82. Maybe an afternoon shower tomorrow. 72 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A key primary last night reaffirmed Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party and specifically on Wyoming. As expected, Republican Representative Liz Cheney lost her race in a landslide, defeated by a Trump-endorsed political newcomer, attorney Harriet Hageman. Of course, Cheney is not just any member of Congress. She came to office five years ago on a rocket trajectory as the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. Everything changed when she voted to impeach Trump after the January 6th insurrection. Republicans ousted her from leadership. Democrats welcomed her as vice chair of the House Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. Now, as she told NBC's Savannah Guthrie this morning, a 2024 presidential run is not out of the question. Are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about running for president? 
it, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but uh, but it is something that I uh, I'm thinking about, and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. So, what do last night's results say about the political future of the GOP and of Liz Cheney herself? Well, political journalist Jody Enda has been thinking and writing about this. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Cheney says she is starting a political organization focused on stopping Donald Trump from winning the White House again, and she has not ruled out running for president herself. But before we look to her future, can we take a step back? Describe how she was perceived as a politician prior to the insurrection. Well, Liz Cheney was a conservative's conservative. She voted with Donald Trump 93% of the time. She only has voted with President Biden 18% of the time. She's opposed to abortion rights. She's a very strong supporter of gun rights. She voted against strengthening the Voting Rights Act. She voted against reforming the police in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And like so many of her Republican colleagues, she wanted to repeal Obamacare. So she comes from the right wing, the conservative wing of the Republican Party, much as her father, Dick Cheney, did. And this is the first time she's really broken away from that mold. And yet that one break caused her to lose her race by nearly 40 points to a relative political unknown who had Trump's support. The former president wrote on his platform, Truth Social, that Cheney can, quote, finally disappear into the depths of political oblivion. But I take it most don't see that as likely to happen. How do you view her political future? Well, that would be in his dream. Uh, her dream is to make sure that Donald Trump never gets anywhere near the Oval Office again. And she seems determined to make that happen. But she can clearly do that as head of a think tank, as the leader of a political action committee. Can she do that as a politician herself if she does not have the strong support and backing of a political party? As you point out, she is one of the most conservative members of the House. She's not about to run for office as a Democrat. And the Republicans have all but disavowed her. Right. She's unlikely to win the Republican nomination, which is the first step that she would need to do to win the presidency. However, she could be a thorn in President Trump's side. Imagine for a moment if she's on the debate stage next to Trump. She's an excellent speaker. She has the facts on her side about the election, and he's easily flappable. Does that mean that she could win the nomination or the presidency? Highly unlikely. But she certainly could use that platform to try to knock him off his game. So if I understand what you're saying, it sounds like you believe she has a future in politics, if not a future as a politician per se. Oh, for sure. She said in her concession speech last night, freedom must not, cannot, will not die here. If we do not condemn the conspiracies and the lies, if we do not hold those responsible to account, we will be excusing this conduct and it will become a feature of all elections. America will never be the same. So she might not be a candidate, but she's certainly going to be a very high profile voice in our nation's conversation. A leader needs followers. Who is her base? That's a very good question. Her base for the fight against Trump are anti-Trump Republicans, Democrats and independents who don't want to see him run again. But right now, she is the darling of Democrats. She's a darling of people who don't want Trump in office again, 
and they will support her in her effort to block him from running or winning again. Let's talk more broadly about what last night's primaries say about the state of the Republican Party right now. After the insurrection, 10 House Republicans voted to impeach Trump, and only two of the 10 are going to be on the general election ballot in the fall. What does that say about the state of the GOP? Yeah, it's interesting, Ari, that the least populous state really is showing us what is happening to the Republican Party. This is Trump's party now. And no matter what people say about conservative values and policies, none of that matters if candidates are not loyal to Donald Trump. The the people who, who either lost their uh, primaries or who chose not to run again in the face of Trump-endorsed candidates are just as conservative as any Republicans are, as Liz Cheney is, and in fact, probably more conservative in many ways than Donald Trump is. That has nothing to do with the politics of the Republican Party anymore. It's, it's a loyalty test to Donald Trump, and especially within Republican primaries where the most conservative members of the base vote, that's what matters. That's political journalist Jody Enda. She's also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a left of center think tank. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. The CHIPS Act, signed into law last week, could provide up to $280 billion for research and chip manufacturing in the U.S., so it can rely less on places like China and Taiwan. But experts warn this will be a long and complicated process. NPR's Emily Fang visited a chip factory in the U.S. to understand more. The first thing Adam Milton has me do when I get to Wolfspeed's gleaming new factory in upstate New York is cover my shoes. Yeah, so for all of our employees, we want to keep the salt, the mud, the nastiness of the Northeast outside and keep it away from our campus. Milton's an operations vice president who helped set up this $1.2 billion factory. By the end of this year, it will be shipping out silicon carbide wafers. That's the material that semiconductor chips are printed and etched onto. Then those chips go into our electric cars and industrial gadgets. We peek inside the clean room where Woolspeed makes its transparent wafers. Engineers and technicians in bunny suits covering everything from head, face to toe work in these perfectly regulated environments. That's not necessarily to protect the people. The people are already safe in this environment. It's to keep, you know, bodily particles and shedding of things, keep it away from the product. Once the factory opens for production at the end of this year, it will run around the clock. So when this gets up and running at 2 a.m., there are people in bunny suits working this place. There are people here 24-7, absolutely. Wolfspeed is a manufacturing company with technology the U.S. wants to stay in the U.S. That's part of what the CHIPS Act aims to do. The act appropriates about $80 billion now ready to go in the form of tax credits, incentives, and matching federal grants to chip makers if they build in the U.S. and not China. It then directs Congress to approve another $200 billion over the next five years for research. That matters because uh, you know, for years, the U.S. federal government invested more in R&D as a share of our GDP than any other country in the world. Now we've fallen to ninth. Stephen Azell is a vice president at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. It's a nonprofit research institute focused on technologies like the semiconductor space. China has criticized the CHIPS Act as a threat to free trade. Azell disagrees. You know, some have called that industrial subsidies. 
our view of it is different when you look around the world, uh, Korea, Taiwan, China, Israel, virtually all of these countries offer incentive packages whose intent is to defray, to some extent, the tens of billions of dollars it can cost to build a new fab. But building from scratch also takes time. Just to give you an example, Wolfspeed's process began in 2013. That's when the State University of New York's Polytechnic Institute helped fund an entire industrial campus. Milton says the state built the roads, water supply, and even a power substation. Chip making needs super stable energy supply with multiple backups, which New York State provided. Just about three miles north of here is a main power station for a lot of New York as well as the Northeast. And so it's actually got redundant feeds from Niagara Falls, from nuclear energy coming from Canada, from other solar plants and wind turbines across the Northeast. Wolfspeed's New York factory is at 300 employees now, but they want to double that. Rex Felton, Global Operations VP at Wolfspeed, says hiring skilled technicians and engineers is a bottleneck, even with the Polytechnic Institute nearby providing lots of talent. Bolstering science and engineering education will help long term. Yeah, I think every company that does semiconductors today runs into that. We're starting relatively slow. We're going to grow very quickly. And I think it's going to continue to be something we're going to have to work on. One of the two bills that were combined to create the final CHIPS Act included immigration reform to lift green card caps for foreign-born graduates and make it easier for highly skilled immigrants to stay. But that part didn't make it into the final law. Wolfspeed is also just one part of an extremely complex supply chain. There are companies that only design chips, others that make them, others that create the tools to etch and deposit materials on Wolfspeed's wafers, and finally, other companies still to test and package the finished chips. Here's Milton again. But one of the big drivers for our, our business going forward is the electrification of the automobile industry. And so with more and more companies seeing the benefit of going electric, they want to work with Wolfspeed. And some of the biggest car companies that are buying from Wolfspeed at the moment are Chinese. The point is not to make semiconductor chips all American, but to create the conditions whereby the most critical and advanced steps of the process are once again U.S. dominated. Emily Fang, NPR News, Marcy, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow snapped its five-day winning streak. It gave up a half percent, 172 points, to close at 33,980. S&P dropped nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 42.74. The Nasdaq lost one and a quarter percent to finish at 12,938. Calling all WBUR members, join us at City Space Wednesday, August 17th, that is tonight, for an exclusive sneak peek of our daily podcast, our new one, and a wine and cheese after party. Free tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now, tickets at PEM.org. The Middleborough Little League baseball team is on the field at this hour in the Little League World Series at Williamsport, Pennsylvania. They're playing the Nolansville, Tennessee squad that represents the Southeast. 
Hate to say it right now, but in the third inning, it's 5 nothing Tennessee. Both teams win or lose continue in the competition. And while the Little Leaguers are playing ball, the pros in Foxborough are busy with preseason scuffling. This morning, the Patriots and Panthers got into more skirmishes, one that led to a melee that got the Pats' Dietrich Wise Jr. ejected. This was the second day in a row the teams fought during joint practices. The Pats and Panthers play an exhibition game on Friday at Gillette. This is WBUR 72 degrees now at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Carrie King is a mother of four serving a 30-year prison sentence in Oklahoma. If you ask her kids why she's locked up. It's because, like, I kind of know why she's in jail, but I know she's not supposed to be in there. Uh, she's in prison because I don't really know how to explain it. It's been hard for other grown-ups in their lives to explain it or understand it too, but it comes down to a kind of law known as failure to protect. Carrie King said her ex-boyfriend beat her and her daughter in 2015. Her ex pled guilty to child abuse and neglect, but police charged King too. They said she hadn't done enough to protect her child. So King wound up with a prison sentence 12 years longer than her ex's. The separation is heartbreaking for her. I mostly call them, um, but I do occasionally write letters trying to, you know, just give them some advice and just show them that I love them more than anything, that no matter what, their mom loves them. And she's not the only woman serving more time than her kid's alleged abuser in Oklahoma. Her story is laid out in a new investigation this month by reporter Samantha Michaels. She covers criminal justice for Mother Jones and joins me now. Welcome, Samantha. Thanks for having me. And we should note that we will discuss details about domestic violence and child abuse in our conversation. Samantha, how did you first find out about Carrie King and what's been happening to her and her family? I first found out about Carrie King back in 2019. I was reading the news and I started reading about another woman named Tondaleo Hall who had been sent to prison because her boyfriend had abused her children and she hadn't known about it. And she had gotten 30 years in prison uh, and he had gotten two years in jail. And it made national news because she was getting out of prison um, and I was outraged. And so I reached out to the ACLU of Oklahoma trying to learn more. And as I was talking with them, they told me that there actually were many, many other cases like this. And they started telling me about Carrie King. There's a short documentary that accompanies your story that includes interviews with King as well as her family. We heard from her kids earlier, but I'd like to play a little bit of what King said about the night that she tried and ultimately failed to stop her ex, John Purdy, from hurting her daughter. 
I feel like I did everything I could with what I had available to me. I didn't have a way to run away. I know I couldn't fight him. I tried to do that. So I I didn't see how I allowed him to hurt my child. That's just not what happened. Samantha, you have looked at hundreds of failure to protect cases. Is this a common refrain that you've observed? Yes, it's very common for um, the mother who was prosecuted for failure to protect to have also been a victim of domestic violence herself and to have, you know, tried her best to protect her kid, but, you know, to have been unsuccessful. You worked with the American Civil Liberties Union to find at least 15 cases where women were given longer sentences than partners convicted of hurting their kids. Could there be more cases that are going under the radar? Yes, it's likely that there are more cases that are going under the radar um, in Oklahoma and, frankly, across the country. Um, There aren't any national data sets to show how many women have been prosecuted for failure to protect. Um, And it's, it's really tricky, actually, to identify these cases, because a lot of times if you're looking at the charging documents, uh, the failure to protect case is labeled simply as child abuse or child neglect. So you would never know the details of the fact that the woman didn't do anything to hurt her child if you're just glancing at the court documents. You write that these sorts of laws are used to punish parents nearly every week and that an overwhelming number of those incarcerated are women. What have you heard from legal experts about why that's the case? It's basically sexism. Most of the legal experts that I talked with said that it comes down to a cultural expectation that women are responsible for what happens in the home. Uh, There's an expectation that they should be the moral center of the family that they should rein in the man's, you know, worst impulses, and that they should do whatever they can to protect their child, even if it means, you know, sacrificing themselves. During the course of your reporting, did you speak to any child welfare experts about why laws like these remain on the books in dozens of states? Yes. Most of the experts that I talked to said that There's a lot of political pressure for lawmakers. Lawmakers don't want to appear like they're being weak on child abuse cases. They don't want to make it seem like they're allowing parents to harm their children. And so it's really, really tough to amend these laws or shorten sentences for women. Let's talk now about other possible reforms and solutions. What is happening in other states that could possibly help women who find themselves in situations like the one that Carrie King did? Well, for the most part, attempts to reform these laws in other states haven't gotten a lot of traction. It just hasn't been a priority for lawmakers during the pandemic. And as we talked about, there's this political pressure to not appear weak on child abuse cases. However, there are things that can be done. New York actually recently passed a law that allows courts to go back and shorten the sentences of women who are thrown in prison for lots of different types of crimes that were caused because they were victims of domestic violence. So they retroactively can go back and shorten their sentence. Um, And other states are starting to look at similar laws, including Oklahoma. There are some activists and attorneys in Oklahoma who want to try to replicate New York's law. And so if that were successful down the line, it's possible that Carrie King and other women under similar circumstances might be able to apply for relief. I want to end by asking you again about 
Carrie King and how she's doing now. When you most recently spoke with her, what did she want people to understand about what has happened to her and what has happened to other women like her across the country? Carrie really wants people to understand that First of all, she did not allow anyone to abuse her child, and she did everything in her power to try to protect her child. She also wants people to understand that she also was a victim of abuse. Um, in recent phone calls that I've had with her, she's, she's having a really tough time. Three of her children, after she went to prison, the state sent them to live with her ex-husband, a different man who had previously abused her. And... The kids have been safe with him since then, but in the last few months, he was actually arrested um, for gun-related felonies, and he hasn't been convicted yet, but if he, if he is convicted, he might face jail time as well. So Carrie is just really, really worried about the safety of her kids, um, and she, she just wants to get out to be there for them. That's Samantha Michaels, a reporter for Mother Jones. Thank you so much for your reporting and for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, law enforcement surveillance programs on school laptops that's still ahead. A good share of clouds around, some sporadic showers this afternoon and tonight before midnight. Windy tonight down around the mid-60s. Tomorrow should bring a mix of clouds and sunshine, highs in the mid-70s to low 80s. Friday, sunny and hot, up around 88 degrees. More sunshine ahead over the weekend should hold to the high 80s. And in sports, the Middleborough Little League has now scored two in the third inning at the World Series going on in Pennsylvania. It is now the fourth inning, and Nolansville, Tennessee, is still in the lead, 5-2. to two. This is WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at ICABoston.org. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Trump endorsed candidates are winning primaries, but will the rhetoric that won the primaries work in a general election? We'll take a close look at what's happening now in Ohio. Most Americans want to see people who are trustworthy and honest and who don't change their stripes for simply political advantage. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former Vice President Mike Pence is urging his fellow Republicans to stop lashing out against the FBI following last week's search of former President Donald Trump's Florida estate. NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us, During a speech in New Hampshire today, Pence also denounced escalating threats against federal agents and government facilities. The FBI search of Trump's estate has drawn ire from Republicans who have called to defund the agency. Pence says members of his party could hold the Justice Department and the FBI accountable for their decisions without attacking the rank-and-file law enforcement personnel. 
The agency executed a search warrant on Trump's residence last week as part of an investigation into the former president's handling of classified documents. Pence also said today he'd give due consideration if asked to testify before the Select House Committee investigating the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building last year. China continues to send naval vessels and fighter jets across the waters towards Taiwan. China's been holding live-fire military drills since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a congressional delegation visited the self-ruled island. NPR's Emily Fang has the latest. Taiwan's defense ministry said China launched five ships and 21 aircraft to churn the waters and buzz the skies around Taiwan. Five of the aircraft crossed into airspace Taiwan overseas, once a rare but now regular occurrence designed to intimidate Taiwan. China also announced this week it was sanctioning seven more Taiwanese officials and activists, including Taiwan's ambassador to the U.S., because China claimed they supported Taiwan independence. China has claimed control over Taiwan for more than 70 years and objects to any sign, like a U.S. congressional visit, that makes Taiwan seem like its own country. Emily Fang, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says he's open to big changes when it comes to the future of the MBTA. There's a proposal to consider a federal takeover of the T that has divided public officials over the best approach to resolve safety problems. WBUR's Chris Siderick has more. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has called for a partnership between the MBTA and the Federal Transit Administration, but Moulton tells Radio Boston it may be time for something more drastic. Perhaps a federal takeover is the best option. I think every option should be on the table. There's no question that we can't just patch it up and continue pretending that nothing is wrong. Moulton says the T has had its chance to address safety issues and failed to do so. I don't have any confidence in in the leadership and organization of the T right now, and I don't know why anyone else in Massachusetts should either. Moulton adds that railroads have been around for more than 100 years, and it's well known what it takes to keep the system up and running safely and efficiently. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. A Somerville company has the green light to begin to offer its gene therapy for a rare blood disorder. Today, the Food and Drug Administration cleared the treatment from Bluebird Bio for use. The gene therapy is a one-time treatment that would replace the current approach for beta thalassemia, which involves years of regular blood transfusions. The new therapy also has approval in Europe. State transportation officials are inspecting all the overhead signs along Interstate 190 in Central Mass. That's after one of the signs fell onto the highway last week in Worcester. The Department of Transportation tells the Telegram and Gazette that the anchor bolts holding it up failed. No one was hurt. No vehicles were damaged. Follow-up ongoing inspections have led to one other sign being taken down so far. The department says in addition to the inspections, it's speeding up plans to replace all the signs and their foundations. A nor'easter swirling off our coast has failed to deliver much, if any, rain today for most of eastern Mass. Meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the dry spell around here continues. Today's big ocean storm not providing any drought relief. The bottom line, just too much dry air in place. I was watching the radar and heavy rain over the ocean was literally evaporating as it tried to make westward progress over us. Obviously, we need every drop we can get at this point. Boston is in a deficit of just shy of 10 inches of precipitation for 2022. Now tonight, a passing rain shower is possible. Forecast low of 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny. High of 82, breezy with an isolated late-day shower, nothing substantial. And the weekend looks warm, dry, and more humid with highs in the mid-80s. 72 degrees now in Boston at 435. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at Avast.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A new school year is coming right up. And if you are a student or you have one in your home, you may not realize how much that school-issued laptop or tablet might know about your private life. A report in Wired magazine digs into the school surveillance software that monitors students' online activity both in and out of the classroom. And it asks how much private information can be accessed by schools, or by law enforcement for that matter. Pia Saras wrote the story. It is headlined, Kids Are Back in Classrooms and Laptops Are Still Spying on Them. Pia Saras, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so these surveillance programs, as I understand it, they were originally meant to monitor student productivity during the pandemic, during virtual school. Um, Now kids are back, or they're about to go back, mostly in person these programs are still being widely used. Do we know how widely? Sure. So uh, according to a report conducted by the nonprofit Center for Democracy and Technology, schools are actually using monitoring software even more than they were last year. So even though the majority of American K-12 students are or will soon be returning to the classroom, 89% of teachers say that their schools will continue to be using monitoring software on their devices. That's up five percentage points from last year. Why? So two big reasons come to mind. One is that teachers genuinely find them useful, even in the classroom. One high school teacher I spoke with said that it made her more efficient. Teachers are facing these unprecedented demands in the classroom. They're helping students catch up from all the academic and emotional disruption caused by the pandemic. So I completely see the appeal of tools that make a teacher's life easier. Mm-hmm. And the last reason is more somber. I think the, the fear of violence at schools is a specter that hangs over school communities, especially after tragedies like the shooting in Uvalde. Everyone wants to keep kids safe, and these companies say in their own marketing copy that their detection and surveillance algorithms can help save lives. So in a climate of fear, that claim could sound very reassuring. And just before we move on, so I understand, why would these programs make a teacher more efficient? Sure. So according to the particularly high school teachers that I was talking to, the live view that the company's uh, software offers lets teachers see what's happening in real time on students' screens so they can keep students more focused, so they can see which students are on task, which students are maybe getting distracted and veering towards the many, many distractions that the internet can offer a student. A teacher can also use the software to take remote control of the device and zap the offending tab themselves. Zap them. They can actually come in and, and shut down your Instagram or your, you know, Zappos shoe shopping right. type thing. Huh. Obviously, you've been talking about teachers being able to monitor. What about law enforcement? Do police have the ability to access this? Right. So that was one of the big reasons why I first came to this story. After the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I think that 
you know, myself and others have been thinking about the ways in which our everyday digital surveillance infrastructures could potentially be closer to police than we normally think they are and could be used to criminalize those who are seeking reproductive health care. So according to the CDT survey, 37% of teachers said that schools will have the monitoring software on outside of regular hours and during those off-school hours, alerts are directed or can be sent to a public safety organization such as police who would receive those alerts and decide how to respond from there. Huh. To be clear, this is all perfectly legal as the law currently stands? Absolutely. Hmm. So if I'm a parent, I'm a parent, <laughs> or, or a kid using a school-issued laptop, are there best practices to recommend if you are interested in protecting your privacy and, and your family's privacy? That is such a great question. I think the first thing to do is to have a conversation with your child about the expectation of privacy that they should and should not have on their school-issued devices. The second thing that I would encourage parents to do is talk to your children's school. Try to get as transparent an idea as possible about what kinds of data the monitoring company is collecting on students, whether it works after hours, and whether it could potentially be used to bridge the connection between the classroom and law enforcement. Pia Saras from Wired Magazine, thank you for sharing your reporting. Thank Fascinating. You. Thank you for having me. Take care. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. The Inflation Reduction Act includes billions of dollars to address climate change in low-income neighborhoods. But many environmental groups that advocate for Black, Indigenous, and other marginalized people did not support this bill. NPR's Rebecca Hersher explains why. The new law will significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is good for humanity as a whole. But in order to get conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin to support it, the law also includes a lot of money for oil and gas companies. And that is very concerning for people who live near refineries and pipelines and plastics factories and who suffer disproportionate pollution and danger because of it. People who are mostly not rich and not white. Juan Zhang Chung is the climate director at the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, which opposed the bill. We are sitting right now with a lot of contradictions. He says it's good that the law provides money specifically for disadvantaged communities, but... A lot of those projects are going to harm our communities. So for us, it feels like what the bill is given with one hand, it's taken with the other. The White House disputes the idea that the law will harm marginalized communities. Ali Zaidi is the deputy national climate advisor to President Biden. Part of this is also um, direct investment in helping clean up communities that have been left out and left behind. 
The White House estimates that the law includes over $60 billion in spending on so-called environmental justice to reduce truck emissions around U.S. ports, for example, plant trees in the hottest city neighborhoods, install solar panels in low-income communities. You know, this bill is the product of compromise. Without compromise, there would be no bill. Zhang Chung says that rings hollow for those who feel like they're on the losing end of the political compromise. For us, it feels really, um, it, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to hear that, you know, this is the best we can get. He says he feels like his community and others are being sacrificed for the greater good. Again, Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A two-year congressional investigation has identified troubling lapses in the country's organ transplant system, blood types mismatched, diseased organs being used anyway, and organs lost or damaged before they can be used to save a life. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports. For the last decade, Precious McCowan's life has revolved around organ transplants. She's a Ph.D. student from Dallas who's already had two kidney transplants herself, and in the midst of her own health troubles, her two-year-old son died. They asked us about donating his organs, and we said yes. Now McCowan may need a third kidney, with her last one starting to fail. Fortunately, the number of kidney transplants increased last year by 16 percent under a new policy that prioritizes the sicker patients over those closer to a transplant center. The policy has improved equity a bit for black patients like McCowan. That is encouraging, but realistically, it's scary. Because there are many still waiting on their first transplant and roughly 5,000 patients a year die on the wait list. The persistent shortage prompted Congress to launch this investigation, and the findings have drawn high-powered calls for an overhaul. The organ transplant system overall has become a dangerous mess. Senator Elizabeth Warren joined the bipartisan tongue-lashing directed at the United Network for Organ Sharing this month. UNOS is the nonprofit that's run the transplant system as long as there's been one. Right now, UNOS is... 15 times more likely to lose or damage an organ in transit as an airline is to lose or damage your luggage. That is a pretty terrible record. The congressional investigation places blame on antiquated technology. The UNO system goes down regularly, delaying matches when every hour counts. There's also no standard way to track an organ, even as companies like Amazon can locate any package anywhere, anytime. Barry Friedman directs the transplant center at Advent Health in Orlando. I can't even get a kidney that's 20 miles away from my transplant center with UNOS thinking that it was in Miami when it was actually in Orlando, 20 miles away. Technical glitches contribute to the high discard rate. Roughly one in four kidneys goes in the trash. And that number's actually gotten worse as organs are traveling farther to reach sicker patients. 
Dr. Jamie Locke directs the transplant program at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. In 2014, a kidney arrived frozen solid and unusable. In 2017, a package came smashed with tire marks on it. And in May of this year, four kidneys had to be tossed for avoidable errors. All I know is that in one week, I received four kidneys, two from Tennessee, one from Florida, and one from Georgia that couldn't be used. UNOS CEO Brian Shepard has already announced he's stepping down at the end of September. He defends the organization, pointing to the rising rate of transplants. While there are things that we can improve, and we do every day, I, I do think that it's a strong organization that has served patients well. Another independent government report recently found any blame should be equally shared with transplant centers and the local organ procurement organizations. The three entities work together but tend to turn into a triangular firing squad when people start asking why so many people still die waiting. It's all noise to precious McCowan in Dallas fretting over how to get a third transplant. Patients were like, hey, I feel like I'm about to die. I'm tired of suffering. She says, I just need a kidney that works for me, and I need it now. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. This story was produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News and Nashville Public Radio. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, how the pandemic helped Olaf Olofsson write the Icelandic love story in his new novel, Touch. Good share of clouds around, some sporadic showers this afternoon and tonight before midnight. Windy down around the mid-60s overnight. Tomorrow, partly sunny skies, highs in the mid-70s to low 80s, 72 degrees now in Boston. At the Little League World Series in Pennsylvania, the team from Middleborough is chipping away at an early lead by Nolansville, Tennessee. It is now 5-3 Nolansville in the fifth inning. Little League games go six innings. The Middleborough team's been practicing four hours a day in prep for this competition that attracts Little Leaguers from around the world. 72 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. And Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. In Pinellas County, Florida, voters say rent and food costs are too high and wages are not keeping up. I'm licensed, like I'm working in the nursing field. I don't understand why we're making just as much as somebody at McDonald's in them type of places. We want the school for what we do. How might inflation influence their votes? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a person's life, is there always the one that got away? The person, maybe persons, about whom you wonder, what if? Well, Olaf Olafsson's new novel takes that question to a new level. His protagonist, Christopher, is an Icelandic man in his 70s who has spent the last 50 years looking for and longing for a woman he loved in his 20s. The book is titled Touch. Olaf Olafsson is with me now. Welcome. Thank you. Start at the beginning. By which I mean not where your novel starts, which is present day or, or nearly. It's at the beginning of the pandemic. 
Um, but back where your story really starts, which is with two young people who at that time lived in London in the 1960s and they fell in love. Um, Christopher, to start, introduce us to him. Christopher is a an Icelandic man, as you as you said, and in the 60s he is studying at the London School of Economics. Um, and he decides for complicated reasons, maybe to quit his studies and on an impulse takes a job at a Japanese restaurant in London. And there were not many of them uh, back then. This is one of the first ones. And there he meets a woman his age, a Japanese immigrant, Miko, and they fall in love. Yeah. Their affair, their romance is short, but incredibly intense. And it sets the mood for the whole novel because there's a lot that um, you don't know about what's happening between them. There's a lot that Christopher can't figure out that it seems Miko is not telling him. Um, one thing we do know is how she describes herself. She uses a term that I was not familiar with. Um, hibakusha, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Okay. What is Hibakusha? Hibakusha is a survivor of the atomic bomb. And uh, this, I heard, I heard the term first um, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, when I traveled a lot to Japan. I spent a lot of time in Japan. And it's, uh, as we say, it's a loaded, it's a loaded word with all kinds of uh, references and uh, stigmas and, and uh, history, of course. Um, and being a, a hibakusha in the Japanese society um, is, is, um, is not easy. And uh, without giving too much away, um, that, is, uh, that was something Miko never talked about. And uh, so when she disappears, she and her uh, father disappear all of a sudden, leaving Christopher not only heartbroken, of course, but with a lot of questions and uh, and at the beginning of the novel, which, as you, as you mentioned, takes place at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, she reaches out to him uh, for the first time in 50 years. And uh, he decides to go and try to find her. It's such a compelling way to open your story with Christopher, now, now an old man, and he gets this message out of the blue on Facebook from a woman he hasn't heard from in 50 years. How did you approach writing that moment? How did you decide that's where you needed to start the story? I had been walking around with this idea in my mind for, for a long time, this story. And uh, in March of 2020, my uh, wife and daughter and I, we found ourselves in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland. Um, and it dawned on me that this was the perfect setting for this story. Um, it's not a pandemic story. It's a it's 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 Christopher's and Miko's story, but um, it takes place during the pandemic. And when I was when I was writing the book, and he decides to leave Iceland to to search for her. I mean, uh, I was hearing, you know, like we all were, you know, news reports of flights being canceled, of of uh, countries shutting down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and I had to I had to get him out of Iceland to London first, and then to Japan at that point. So this was, I was writing that kind of um, in real time, if you want. Ah, well, and it gave a strange urgency to a love story yes. that had been on pause for 50 years. And it suddenly was not only are we getting old, but if I'm going to ever see this woman again, I got to get on a plane right now. Yeah, ah. yeah, there was no, he's a widower, the, uh, the novel 
talks about his his marriage. Um, you know, the woman that after he got back to Iceland from London, and uh, and he's a widower now, and and he's just closed his restaurant because of the pandemic. And there's one thing on his mind: it's it's to see Miko and find out what actually happened. So he he makes the trip. So the book people are obviously gathering. It's a love story. Um, it's also a mystery because we don't find out until the very end the mystery of why Miko disappeared and ended their affair. It was also, I thought, a meditation on loneliness, how it is possible to be surrounded by people, even people you love, and still feel a very specific loneliness in the absence of a very specific person. Yes, and the pandemic was, was probably the perfect time to write about that kind of loneliness and sort of the loneliness that you find yourself in if if you feel you're li- you haven't lived the life you perhaps were hoping to live or wanted to live at some point is the book also perhaps a meditation on memory on what we choose to remember um, and you make that more poignant because christopher um, has been diagnosed we don't know details but with some form of memory loss yes and that I, I love writing first person. I love the channeling, if you if you want, mm-hmm. um, a protagonist in first person, because you you see everything through his or her eyes, and uh, and and the reader has to determine how much they can uh, trust the narrator and and his or her memory. And uh, and Christopher is questioning his own honesty, maybe uh, questioning his history, and the trick. For me, is to evolve that through the through the novel. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy it very much. Sort of putting myself in that in that situation, and and you know, I, I kind of teased my my friends who are who are actors and, and and say they have to do you know go into a character and do that for you know weeks. And I said, well, you know, that's what that's what you do as a novelist yeah. when you go into a character for months or years. Well. I will say it's one of the huge challenges is how you end a love story in a way that feels satisfying but not treacly, um, and how you end a mystery in a way that feels satisfying and not totally outlandish. And without giving anything away, I thought you nailed them both. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Well, thank you um, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. That is the writer, Olaf Olofsson. His new novel is titled Touch. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. 
From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In the forecast, plenty of clouds around. Some sporadic showers this evening and overnight tonight, mostly before midnight tonight. Should be windy down around the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, a nice day. Clouds and sunshine, a little bit more humid with highs in the mid-70s to low 80s. Friday should be sunny and hot, up around 88 degrees. More sunshine over the weekend should hold steady in the high 80s. 72 degrees now in the Boston area. At the Little League World Series in Pennsylvania, the team from Middleborough is chipping away at an early lead by Nolansville, Tennessee. The score is now 5-3 Nolansville in the fifth inning, but the game is on hold right now, a temporary pause because of lightning in the area. This is WBUR. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A federal judge has ordered three of the country's largest pharmacy chains, CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart, to pay $650 million for helping to fuel the U.S. opioid crisis in Ohio by selling and dispensing enormous amounts of prescription pain pills. It's Wednesday, August 17th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also in Ukraine, there's growing concern over missile strikes and rocket attacks near a large nuclear power plant. The current situation is quite critical. The amount of stuff is decreasing because people are afraid for their lives. Also, rising prices at the grocery store and elsewhere are putting a strain on family budgets. Retailers are making adjustments, offering smaller packaging sizes and more discount options. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney lost her primary by a wide margin last night after criticizing former President Trump's lies about the 2020 election. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports Cheney's already taking steps to continue her battle against the former president. Attorney Harriet Hageman, backed by Trump, defeated Cheney and is expected to win the seat in November. Cheney said she could have easily won another term if she remained loyal to Trump, but said no public office is worth attacking democracy. This morning, Cheney told NBC's Today Show she was thinking about running for president in 2024. She's launched a political organization to continue her effort to block another Trump term in the White House. Uh, and I think that defeating him is going to require uh, a broad and united front of Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Uh, and that's uh, what I intend to be uh, to be part of. Cheney is vice chair of the House Committee probing the January 6th Capitol attack, which is expected to hold more public hearings in the fall. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has announced a major restructuring, where the agency says it will prioritize its public health response after months of criticism. It's been too slow to act on its handling of COVID-19 and monkeypox. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky saying the agency is undertaking a series of changes designed to make it more nimble in terms of responding and quicker at providing data. 
According to a briefing document released today, an external report into the agency's response is found it to be sometimes too late in providing important data needed to inform federal decision-making. Former Vice President Mike Pence says he would consider offering testimony to the House of Representatives January 6th committee. New Hampshire Public Radio's Josh Rogers reports Pence says the American people have a right to know what went on that day. Speaking at St. Anselm College, Pence criticized Democrats for not including Republican members selected by House GOP leaders on the January 6th committee, but he didn't rule out testifying if invited. It would be unprecedented in history for a vice president to be summoned to testify on Capitol Hill. But I, as I said, I don't want to prejudge. If there's ever any formal invitation rendered to us, we'd give it due consideration. Pence said the public also deserves a full accounting of the search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate and urged Republicans to stop attacking rank-and-file law enforcement, including the FBI. For NPR News, I'm Josh Rogers in Concord. A federal judge in Ohio is awarding damages of $650 million to two Ohio counties that sued the pharmacy chain CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart over their opioid distribution policies. It was district court judge releasing the award amounts in a ruling issued today. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped 171 points. The Nasdaq was down 164 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is adopting a new strategy to try to vaccinate more people against monkeypox. Today, state health officials announced they're adopting a federal policy announced earlier this month to provide more people with smaller doses. The state will now use one-fifth the typical vaccine dose. The policy was put in place because the country is dealing with a limited supply of shots and the smaller doses will allow more people to get vaccinated. More than 220 people in the state have been diagnosed with the illness, which can cause painful rashes. State police have suspended search operations on Martha's Vineyard for a man who went missing after he jumped off to bridge. Today, troopers searched from the shore for the 21-year-old man from Jamaica. Rough surf is preventing divers from searching the water around where the man dove in Sunday night from a bridge that was featured in the movie Jaws. He and his brother jumped from the bridge and were not able to get back on shore. The brother died. State police say the search may resume when the ocean conditions improve. The September 1st move-in date for Boston-area college students is driving a spike in rental scams. Cambridge police say rental fraud is especially bad this year because more students are transitioning from remote to in-person learning due to lower COVID rates. Department spokesman Jeremy Warnick says it can be difficult to vet the authenticity of an online apartment listing if you cannot visit the unit before you sign a lease. But he says one strategy helps. Essentially the 20-question game. Get a sense of... You know, what's the laundry situation like? What's trash pickup like? Some questions that a scammer who's trying to make a quick dollar is not necessarily going to have uh, potentially details on. He says long-distance renters should also request a live video chat tour of the apartment they're interested in. Massachusetts will share in a $450 million settlement with the maker of Percocet and other opioids. The drug company Endo International has agreed to settle claims that its marketing of a pain reliever downplayed the risk of addiction. About three dozen states will receive money to support addiction treatment and prevention. A bankruptcy judge must approve the deal. And new honors are proposed for the late Celtics legend Bill Russell. U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren have introduced a resolution that would have the Senate formally honor the longtime player and coach and express condolences to his family. Russell died last month. He was 88. He won 11 NBA titles with the Celts and was an advocate for civil rights. The Senate resolution points to Russell's achievements on the court and his work opposing segregation. 
72 degrees now in the Boston area. Overcast skies, windy this evening. Some isolated showers through the early part of tonight anyway, about 64 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, inching up to the high 70s to low 80s. Again in Boston, 72 degrees now at 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The cost of food and rent have been outpacing people's paychecks over the last year. That has more and more families watching their pennies. Well, neighborhood retailers have spotted those changes and have been making adjustments as customers switch to less expensive items. NPR's Scott Horsley has been talking with shopkeepers around the country for an up-close view of how consumers are faring and what it means for the U.S. economy. Tom Charlie's family has been selling groceries in the Pittsburgh area for four generations through lots of economic ups and downs. Charlie says even his father, who ran stores during the high inflation of the 70s and 80s, has never seen a period quite like this. We're taking a hit on items. Like I'm looking at something like bananas. We just had another price increase on bananas. There are certain items that we're just not going to increase prices on no matter what happens because it's such a staple for those customers. But it's a challenge for sure. There's no doubt about it. The three Charlie family shop-and-save markets pride themselves on high-quality service with in-store butchers and bakeries. The stores employ more than 200 people and could use additional help. But Tom Charlie says they also have to be cost-competitive at a time when grocery prices are climbing at a double-digit annual rate. We've never said that we're going to be the cheapest. And we've also never said we're going to be the whole foods of the market. But I would also say that we are as focused today as we've ever been on price and making sure that we can get items that people care about at the best price possible. These days, Charlie's weekly newspaper ads are less likely to feature luxury items like T-bone steaks and more likely to spotlight bargains such as yogurt cups, 10 for 10 bucks. The stores also get a lot of mileage from offering customers a discount at the gas station. 10 cents a gallon off for every $50 they spend on groceries. Our customers love that promotion that we have that. Everyone I know that shops in my store uses it. Overall, consumer spending continues to grow faster than inflation, thanks in part to a strong job market. But as prices climb, shoppers are becoming more selective. The Commerce Department said today that Americans spent less money at gas stations last month as gas prices fell from a record high in June. Shoppers spent more money on home and garden products, electronics, and hobby supplies. The Smokestack Hobby Shop in Lancaster, Ohio, sells train sets, radio-controlled cars, and model airplanes. Patty Reardon, who runs the shop with her husband, says sales boomed early in the pandemic, but now some of the most elaborate model kits, priced at $70 or more, are out of reach for some customers. The guy who buys a lot of those for us said, these kits, they're great, but I just don't see many people buying them right now. So... We're still going to get some of those high-end ones, but it's definitely going to be a lot less. Reardon is stocking more mid-price models, around $35. And a growing share of her sales now come from used items that another hobbyist has traded in. You're almost a little bit of a scavenger these days. It's a lot of work to go get things. It's a lot of work to sort through. But it really allows a lot more flexibility to keep the shop going. And that I think, gives us the strength to weather through some of these things. Victor Garcia runs a Mexican-style ice cream company in the Fort Worth area. 
He specializes in flavors like mango, tres leches, and tequila. Our whole mission is to make people happy by sharing a piece of our Mexican culture. Garcia's two soldia stores cater to a lot of couples and families. This summer, he noticed many customers were scaling back their orders, maybe buying just one item instead of two. That was the first real indicator that, hey, maybe a recession is coming and maybe we do have to be a little bit more flexible with our budget-conscious consumers. Garcia started offering smaller portion sizes, and he's hunting around for cheaper supplies. Even though his own cost has soared, Garcia says he's determined to keep prices affordable. The last thing he wants is for customers to go elsewhere. Whether it's with inflation or with anything else that comes our way, the customer speaks, they tell you what they want. <laughs> it's up to us as the businesses to really listen and pivot and give the customer the experience that they want. Businesses of all sizes are having to pivot now and listen to their customers as prices and preferences continue to change. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The largest nuclear power plant in Europe sits on a river in Ukraine. The Zaporizhia plant itself and the site it's on has been occupied by Russia since early in its invasion, since March. Three miles away, the other bank is still held by Ukrainian forces. And those forces accuse Russia of using a nuclear facility as cover, as a staging ground to launch strikes against Ukrainian territory. Russia, in turn, has blamed Ukraine for rocket attacks that have happened near the power plant. And as Ukrainian forces step up their counteroffensive to take back key parts of southern Ukraine, the potential for a nuclear catastrophe grows. Elena Parenyuk is a senior researcher in the Institute for Safety Problems of Nuclear Power Plants of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. Welcome to All Things Considered. Uh, thank you very much for having me, and my pleasure to talk with you today. So, Elena, this power plant has been operated by Ukrainian employees, but it's now been under Russian control for months. Can you help us understand what the current situation there is now? The current situation is quite critical. Right now, actually, Ukrainian staff is operating nuclear power plant as a nuclear power plant is a very sophisticated device to be operated. But the operation is ongoing under Russian commands. The staff of Zaporizhia and their families are kept hostages. So staff who is actually working in the Parisian nuclear power plant, it is very difficult for them to concentrate on their work. And now the city satellite of the Parisian nuclear power plant, it is being shelled by Russian forces. So quite a lot of citizens are evacuating themselves. So the amount of staff is decreasing because people are afraid for their lives. So as we're thinking about Zaporizhia, what could a worst case scenario be? There are two huge accidents, and it is Chernobyl and Fukushima. Both of these scenarios are possible in Zaporizhia. The reason for Chernobyl accident was the lack of safety culture in the nuclear power plant and also that caused the mistake of the staff. So when we are talking about Zaporizhia right now, the staff is exhausted. So if they will make a mistake because of their tiredness, it might cause Chernobyl scenario. And then we are coming to another scenario, which is Fukushima scenario. So right now, Zaporizhia is connected to Ukrainian grid by only one power line. And the power from the grid is necessary to power up the water pumps to cool down the reactor core. 
So if this one power line will be lost, then the diesel generators will start. But if the diesel generators run out of the fuel, it will cause the melt of the reactor core and the release of radionuclides into the environment, just as it happened in Fukushima. So, Elena, apart from a ceasefire around the plant, what could be done to prevent a disaster from happening? The complexity of the construction of the reactor requires the consolidation of the global community to actually control the situation around the nuclear power plant. International community should pay much more attention to controlling of all of these huge bureaucratic bodies that are taking care about the nuclear safety and security of the world. So we are already in a very tough situation and it could have been prevented if the whole international community reacted earlier. That was Elena Parenyuk, a senior researcher in the Institute for Safety Problems of Nuclear Power Plants of National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. Elena, thank you for your time. Thank you. If you have ever seen a close-up photo of a jumping spider, you'll know they're the kind of cute ones. Many of them fit on the tip of a finger, and they sport fuzzy, colorful bodies, big eyes. They have this incredible vision that is really not comparable with with any other insects or arthropods. They've been shown to be really smart and to do, to do really smart things. Daniela Ressler is a behavioral ecologist at the University of Konstanz in Germany. She and her colleagues have now discovered something else intriguing about these spiders. At night, they seem to enter a state resembling rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. That is the phase of human sleep where our bodies are immobilized, but our eyes dart quickly and we can have really visual dreams. Well, by filming baby jumping spiders at night, Resler says her team was able to detect periods of REM-like activity. All the legs would curl into the body and they would twitch while doing that. We would see that always when this happened, we also detected quite significant and very obvious eye movements. The findings appear in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, Resler cautions it's too early to say whether the spiders are technically asleep during these rapid eye movements. They're going to test that next. But even these early findings are exciting to sleep scientists like Mark Blumberg at the University of Iowa. These behaviors themselves are just you know, if I can say so, they're just beautiful behaviors. What we want to know at some fundamental level is why do these animals do this? Now, Blumberg was not involved in the work, but he says studying these behaviors across the animal kingdom might someday tell us more about how REM sleep evolved. As for the question, do spiders dream? Blumberg is skeptical. People, when they look at rapid eye movements, what they see is a visual system being activated. They see these movements of the eyes and they immediately jump to dreaming. And I just think that's a bridge too far for this stage of the research. Resler agrees and says even if spiders do dream, they probably don't dream like us. I mean, it's beautiful to think about it that way, that these spiders hang there and they, they have a visual scene of catching a fly or, or trying to get a mate. It's quite cute, but probably is going to be very different. After all, Resler points out that some spiders have very poor vision, but are very attuned to vibrations. She wondered if they might dream in vibrations instead. Something to ponder as you drift off to sleep tonight.
You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why the Chinese ambassador to Washington says the U.S. is provoking China. The Dow snapped its five-day winning streak today. It gave up a half percent, 172 points, to close at 33,980. S&P dropped nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 42.74. The Nasdaq lost one and a quarter percent to finish at 12,938. All the details coming up in just over an hour on Marketplace. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. More shopping mall retail space will likely be converted to laboratory space in the area. The Boston Business Journal reports that Boston-based New England Development wants to turn more than half the third floor of the Cambridge Side Mall into life sciences space. The developer had planned to use the entire floor for office space, but it's amending its proposal before the Cambridge Planning Board. Life sciences facilities are also being developed in, among other places, three former Lord & Taylor department stores in three malls in Braintree, Natick, and Burlington. This is 90.9 WBUR, overcast skies, windy this evening. Could have a few showers here and there through the early part of tonight. Temperatures about 64 overnight. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, inching up to the high 70s to the low 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees still in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Over coffee and sparkling water yesterday, around the white linen dining room table of a high-ceilinged townhouse here in D.C., China's ambassador to the U.S. was holding court. I was one of a number of journalists who came to meet him. My NPR colleague Greg Myrie was another. We were all jammed elbow to elbow around the table because as U.S.-China tensions run higher and higher, we all wanted a chance to question China's man in Washington. Now, meanwhile, another colleague, Tom Bowman, has been working the Pentagon, talking to senior U.S. military officials about how they see a possible confrontation over Taiwan. So I invited Tom and Greg to both join me and talk through what we're all hearing and learning. Hi there, you two. Good to be with you. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, Greg, um, you start us off. The ambassador um, sat down. He talked with us for well over an hour, um, read from prepared notes, and then took all kinds of questions. What was your main takeaway? Yeah, Ambassador Qin Gong began with this sort of extended speech on why China so strongly objects to U.S. congressional visits to Taiwan. And the bottom line is anything that's seen as official, part of act the actual U.S. government, really does strike a nerve there. And this was a recurring theme throughout his remarks. Now, he referred both to the delegation led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, which took place earlier this month, and a second delegation that was there just over this past weekend. Let's have a listen. China has always been opposing congressional visits to Taiwan. 
and the Speaker of the House is not a, a person in the street. I hope that uh, Nancy Pelosi is, is the last Speaker visiting Taiwan. Now, we should note the Biden administration did express some reservations about these visits uh, for that very reason, that it could raise tension. But the administration said that members of Congress, indeed all Americans, are free to travel as they like. Now, the Chinese ambassador didn't accept this. He said the U.S. Congress was, quote, part of the government of the U.S. It's not some independent, uncontrollable branch. Uh, President Biden may have a slightly different take on that. Yes, he might indeed beg to differ on that one. I was struck, Greg, listening to how forcefully he said the current tensions are are initiated by the U.S. This is all the U.S. He said the U.S. needs to rethink and and reflect on its words. Um, The message I sensed was basically he wants the U.S. to knock it off or China is going to be forced to react. And I'll put that one to you, Tom, because we have seen... China react. They have ratcheted up military drills uh, around exercises around Taiwan. How do people at the Pentagon see this? Well, Mary Louise, the biggest immediate concern with the exercises is someone making a mistake, a miscalculation, basically some U.S. or Chinese military personnel shooting or hitting something and it escalates. Now, this happened 21 years ago, you may remember, when a U.S. intelligence collecting aircraft, a P-3, was operating 100 miles off China was intercepted by Chinese fighters, and one of those fighters, U.S. officials say, knocked into the P-3, forcing an emergency landing in China, where the U.S. crew was held for 10 days. Obviously very tense, so that kind of an incident, or something even worse, keeps people up at night. Now, the longer term, officials say China won't have the military capability to invade Taiwan, until 2027. Capability, of course, doesn't mean they'll actually do it. Um, What if China were to do something short of an all-out invasion, but still quite significant, um, say a, a naval blockade of Taiwan, how is the U.S. military thinking through what its options would be? You know, it's a good question. I think it depends. Would that be part of an overall invasion or just a standalone blockade to maybe force some Taiwanese concessions, bring a change of government or something? Now, the U.S. could go to the U.N. and say this blockade is illegal, violates the movement in international waters. If it's part of an invasion, the U.S. could challenge the blockade militarily. And, of course, that could escalate. If China fires and hits U.S. ships, for example, there are U.S. casualties. The United States could respond by targeting Chinese missile sites in China. This is, again, why they worry about escalation. Sure. And and I'll just jump in there to note that the ambassador specifically mentioned U.S. Navy ships passing through the Strait of Taiwan. He said this is something that... Uh, clearly gets on the the nerves of the of the Chinese government, and then the Taiwan Strait being the waters between the mainland and the island. He said the U.S. has gone way too far with these navigations, and he says this emboldens those in Taiwan who would like to see full independence from China well beyond their current self-governing status. And Mary Louise, if I could quickly add, the U.S. has made these transits through the Straits for many, many decades. I'm told another transit by U.S. ships is expected soon. International waters, not Chinese waters, but will China now respond more aggressively, especially given the congressional visits and rising tensions? Again, this gets back to the mistakes, miscalculations that people are worried about. You know, one question that's been on a lot of people's minds is what lessons China might be taking from Russia's war in Ukraine. Is it giving them any pause in terms of thinking about staying away from military escalation? Tom, I want to. I put that question to the ambassador yesterday. What lessons are you drawing? He dodged it. Let me put it to you. What What are you hearing? 
hearing from people you speak to in terms of what lessons China or, or the U.S. Yeah, no, may be no, drawing from Ukraine. Absolutely. Both China and the U.S. are drawing a lot of lessons from Ukraine, how a major power through arrogance and hubris can assume it will be easy to take over a smaller nation, then get stuck in, in by good defenses. Chinese officials, I'm told, are shocked by the Russian performance, analysts say. Uh, now, with getting to the defense of Taiwan, Taiwan is coming up with kind of what Ukraine has, a layer upon layer of defensive weapons and works. They call it a porcupine defense. And Taiwan and Meaning the U.S. Meaning it's so, are, uh, so awful and prickly to swallow right. you wouldn't And also, try. interestingly, yeah. in Ukraine, the population is against this. It's their land. So the population is rising up against Russia, too. That's very key in something like this. Will the Taiwanese population rise up? Some of them, all of them, the majority. Now, I know Taiwan and the U.S. are also working together on further shoring up those defenses. That's going on as we speak. Um, last word to you, Greg. Uh, we hear a lot from the U.S. perspective uh, on what the relationship with China looks like, worsening relations. Uh, just talk us through what you heard and how the ambassador frames the current state of relations. Ambassador Qin was known for his sharp words when he was the spokesman for China's foreign ministry in Beijing, so it's no surprise that he's pretty direct and blunt here in Washington. He arrived about a year ago, and he says he's constantly hearing talk about a fear of China, with China being blamed for many problems in the U.S. He says he doesn't think that's fair. He thinks that China's being misperceived. China is not a threat. It's not a challenge. We have an no intention at all to replace the United States, uh, even to destroy the United States. So I do hope that people can get rid of uh, the threat phobia. China cannot change the United States, and the United States cannot change China. And in his view, the U.S. is engaging in this pattern of behavior that he says is the main reason for raising tensions and undermining the ties. Now, of course, many U.S. politicians and those in the national security community here say these threats are very real and they believe that China is driving them. As two colleagues from our national security team, Greg Myrie and Tom Bowman, thanks to you both. You're welcome. My pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In the forecast, some passing showers around this evening and overnight tonight. Low temperatures about 64 tonight. For tomorrow, sunshine and clouds in a blend milder, up around 82 degrees, maybe an afternoon shower as well. The Middleborough Little League baseball team is narrowing the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. They're playing the Nolansville, Tennessee squad that represents the Southeast. Right now, the game has gone five innings. That's five out of six. And it looks like it's five to three right now, but the game is on hold because of lightning. The uh, whichever team wins today will go on. So will the losers, by the way, in the competition. While the Little Leaguers are playing ball, the pros in Foxborough are busy with preseason scuffling. This morning, the Pats and Panthers got into more skirmishes, one that led to a melee that got the Pats' Dietrich Wise Jr. ejected. It was the second day in a row the teams fought during joint practices. Pats and Panthers play an exhibition game Friday at Gillette. This is WBUR. So I deboard, and they say that the flight from Raleigh to New York was canceled due to inclement weather and that there's nothing they can do. This is really the first indication all day 
that I actually have a reason why a flight was canceled. It's an act of God. They blamed God. I'm Natalie Kitroeff. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Scientists are projecting that an additional 100,000 more people could die from COVID-19 over the next nine months in the U.S. NPR's Rob Stein has more on the research report. The new estimate comes from the COVID-19 Scenario Modeling Hub, a consortium of disease modelers that advises the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In the most optimistic scenario, the researchers estimate that another 111,000 people could die from COVID-19 by May. That's assuming that another booster campaign with more protective vaccines starts in mid-September. But in the most pessimistic scenario, as many as 181,000 more deaths could occur by May. That's if a new, even more contagious variant emerges and the booster campaign doesn't start until November. Nearly 500 people are currently dying from COVID-19 every day. Rob Stein, NPR News. With water levels on Germany's Rhine River hitting record lows, economists say the dry spell could have devastating consequences for Europe's largest economy. NPR's Rob Smits tells us energy supplies could also be further strained as ships carrying coal and gasoline are affected. In order to wean itself off of Russian gas, Germany is planning to use coal-fired power plants as a backup. But coal barges are carrying around a fifth of what they typically carry due to the low water levels on the Rhine. Economist Guido Baldi of the German Institute for Economic Research says if problems continue with the transport of coal along the river, Germany will likely see electricity shortages beginning as early as September. NPR's Rob Schmitz, the situation along the Rhine near the Dutch border highlights the extreme lack of water caused by months of drought, which has affected much of Europe and is also linked to climate change. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street as more big retailers reported second quarter profits. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins is expressing concern after Boston Children's Hospital says some of its workers have received death threats. An online harassment campaign has targeted the hospital after social media critics wrongly concluded that the hospital performs hysterectomies on transgender children. It does not. Rollins tells WBUR's Radio Boston people are entitled to their feelings and can use appropriate channels to disagree with things. But when it crosses into the level of threats, um, that is when we are potentially we are potentially going to have a law enforcement response to this incident. And we have seen people threatening online. Boston Children's Hospital has run a trans health care unit for young people since 2007. Boston police say that they are investigating the reports of threats made at the hospital. A federal judge has awarded $650 million in damages to two counties in Ohio in a landmark lawsuit against several pharmacy chains, including Rhode Island-based CVS. The suit, which also names Walgreens and Walmart, claimed the way they distributed opioids to customers caused severe harm to communities. The money will be used to fight opioid addiction in Ohio counties. Unionized workers at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams plan to go on a one-day strike on Friday. As WBUR's Amelia Mason reports, workers cite stalled negotiations over pay. The union wants to raise the minimum wage of its workers to nearly $20 an hour over three years. But the museum says there's no budget for guaranteed annual raises. 
Union worker Maro Elliott says the museum's proposal falls short of a living wage. They have made it seem as though there needs to be a choice made between supporting programming and the artists and supporting workers, which I think is a very unfair comparison to be making. A museum spokesperson says its contract proposals are, quote, equitable and address the root causes of employees' concerns. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. The museum will remain open during the strike. The city of Boston is making $50 million available for affordable housing projects. The money will go to developers who will create or preserve affordable units. The city is taking applications through next month. And the local chapter of a national education nonprofit has received a $1.1 million gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. Junior Achievement of Greater Boston says the money is part of a $38 million donation to Junior Achievement USA from the ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. The nonprofit runs programs that teach children financial literacy and business ownership training. Junior Achievement of Greater Boston says the money will help support its offerings, including career exploration for middle school students. In the forecast, overcast and windy this evening. Some isolated showers around through the early part of tonight, about 64 overnight. And for tomorrow, a nice day should be partly sunny, up in the high 70s to low 80s. 72 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal judge has ordered the nation's largest pharmacy chains to pay $650 million to two counties in Ohio hit hard by the opioid epidemic. The money will be paid by CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart over the next 15 years. It'll help Lake and Trumbull counties recover from an addiction crisis that continues to devastate communities near Cleveland. NPR's Brian Mann is following the case. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so these three chains, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, they, they've always denied any wrongdoing. How did we get here? Prescriptions written by licensed doctors. But these companies were accused of recklessly... Uh, more than made any medical sense. Um, these were, uh, over one five-year period, pharmacies dispensed more than 140 million pain pills, and that's just in these two Ohio counties. So late last year, Mary Louise, a jury found that the pharmacy chain's behavior was so egregious uh, that it helped create what's known as a public nuisance in legal terms, fueling the opioid crisis. So what's happened today is this federal judge, Dan Polster, has put a price tag on that verdict. He's ordered these companies to pay more than $650 million to help fund things like addiction treatment programs. Right. And it's going to go to these two Ohio counties I mentioned. I'm thinking there's there's got to be a whole lot of counties across the U.S. that are struggling with the opioid crisis and must be eyeing this. How could this ruling resonate nationally? 
yeah, this could be a really big deal nationally. It, this was what's known as a bellwether trial. It tested some legal arguments uh, about these pharmacy chains, whether they could be held accountable for their role in the opioid crisis. In this case, the answer was yes, they will have to pay. In his ruling today, Judge Polster talked about the historic nature of this moment, forcing companies to pay to remedy what he described as a tenacious and escalating national tragedy. Thousands of other communities have already filed similar lawsuits. So in theory, these pharmacy chains could be on the hook for billions of dollars. What are they saying, the companies? All three companies say they will appeal. Uh, in its statement, the company Walmart said the real blame for the opioid crisis should fall on pill mill doctors and government regulators. But one thing these trials have revealed, Mary Louise, is just how many pills these companies dispensed, vast quantities of pills, not just in Ohio, but nationwide. NPR's investigation last year found some pharmacists at Walmart tried to raise red flags about that over the years, uh, allegedly about improper oversight. These are all claims that uh, Walmart denies. Um, step back a little bit and just uh, give us a sense of what's going on elsewhere on the litigation landscape. I understand some other companies have been settling opioid lawsuits recently. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. One thing that sets these pharmacy chains apart is that they've refused to negotiate some kind of big national opioid settlement, some sort of big lump sum that would end their liability. Instead, they're fighting this in court. And as I mentioned, they plan to appeal today's ruling. But in the last few weeks, we've seen other companies, including drug makers Allergan, Endo, and Teva, all reach big comprehensive national settlements together worth more than $7 billion. In theory, that money will go to help fund addiction treatment programs all over the U.S. And PR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Paying for period products is now a thing of the past in Scotland. Nearly two years after the country's parliament initially passed the landmark legislation, anyone who needs period products can download a free app and find a location offering sanitary products or even have them delivered to their home. Monica Lennon is a member of the Scottish Labour Party and drafted the initial legislation for the Period Products Act in 2020. She says though Scotland may have been the first, they will not be the last. And Monica Lennon joins us today. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thank you for speaking to me today. Thanks for being here. So why is it so important to you that people have access to free period products? Well, it's hugely important because periods are normal. They're a normal part of life, but too many people struggle to afford the period pads and tampons that they need. It affects people's health and well-being, mentally and physically, and participation in education and in the workplace. Back in 2016, when I started to research the issue through my role in Parliament, Sometimes um, women said that they struggled to manage their periods in a dignified way because they had an abusive husband or partner. So domestic violence was an issue. Disabled people had sometimes different experiences. So there's a lot going on there. And we just found that periods were shrouded in, in, in mystery and, and stigma for, for too many people, even in a country like Scotland, where we think we are really progressive, this was still a really hidden issue. Okay, so these are free for everyone. Can you give us an example of places where people could go and get free period products? Are there, is that mapped out yet? Yeah, so if you are in education, whether that's in school, college or university, 
the free period products that are already available. So in the wider community, it'll depend on the region in Scotland. Some areas are very rural and remote, some are more urban and metropolitan. So it might be the local library or leisure centre. So in each part of Scotland, the local communities have told the decision makers where they want the products to be and the app brings it all together. So not everyone, but most people have smartphones nowadays. So you can download the app, put in your postcode or zip codes and find out what's the nearest pickup point. So it's called Pick Up My Periods app. And that's another tool. And how is Scotland paying for these products? As we did the pilot schemes and evaluated, we could see that it didn't have to be a big expense. Savings were made as the project developed. So some organisations felt they had to put in a special vending machine that would go on the wall, would have to be installed and there would be procurement costs. But actually, most places have put a, a basket or a box into the bathroom and a little sign saying please help yourself and we found that it hasn't been abused people haven't come in you know with a, a truck or a van to take away all the products so people really <laughs> like it and people can still buy products if they want to and I think most people will do that so this is a safety net for people who need that little bit extra support. It's not compulsory to take the free period yes. products. No one is making you take free tampons <laughs> and menstrual no, cups, right? No, um, that Think of the injustice of it. But what's really exciting is we're seeing more and more private employers doing this because they see the benefit mm. and they want to signal that they are, you know, period friendly. It's a place where women and girls and people who menstruate will feel supported. And if you are menstruating, you don't have to panic. You know, not everyone can carry a spare pad in their purse or back pocket at all times. So when you go into the washroom and there's paper towels to dry your hands, there's, you know, there's toilet roll, period pads and products will be there too. And that should just become normal um, as time goes on. Monica Lennon, member of the Scottish Parliament, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Football players are practicing now. From the pros to college to high school, they start at the hottest time of year. Many on sun-baked fields, wearing all kinds of equipment, and that can be dangerous. For member station WABE, Molly Samuel reports on how Georgia has taken steps to protect high school athletes and how the approach there has become a national model. It's late summer, and the Cedar Grove Saints are doing drills on the field behind their suburban Atlanta high school. It's a sunny, humid morning in the low 80s already, but it feels hotter than that. This is a good team. So in the last six years, we've won four state titles. Head coach John Adams. This past NFL draft, we put four guys in the NFL draft. Any other high school in the country do that? No, ma'am. Coach Adams is excited about this upcoming season. He's also watchful about keeping his athletes safe as they work out in this Atlanta heat. 
That's something Adonijah Green appreciates. The 17-year-old defensive end says he's heard about past tragedies with heat killing athletes. We're able to hydrate anytime with no restrictions on the water, plenty of water. And the players aren't wearing their pads yet. In late July, they start out training without the pads and no tackling. With the pads, it gets hot, it gets heavy, it ties you down. These aren't just policies at Cedar Grove. The Georgia High School Association mandates a five-day period without pads as a ramp-up. We're seeing that that makes a big difference. Bud Cooper studies athletes and heat illness at the University of Georgia, and he wrote the heat rules for the State High School Association. They got put in place a decade ago. That's when Georgia was one of the worst in the country for high school football player heat-related deaths. Clearly, there was a problem. But it wasn't just here. Research shows over three decades, starting in the 1980s, nearly 60 football players around the country died from heat-related illness. Most of them were in high school. But Georgia's turned the situation around. In addition to the mandatory ramp-up period, teams have to measure the wet bulb globe temperature, which factors in heat, humidity, and sun exposure. Depending on that reading, there are more breaks. If it's hot enough, there's no outside practice. After the heat rules went into effect, Cooper did another study to see if they worked. And they did. There have been fewer heat illnesses and, in programs that followed the rules, no heat-related deaths among high school athletes in Georgia. It's exciting from my part. There is nothing that's more satisfying than for me to be able to sit here and say, I've done some things that have saved lives. Cooper emphasizes the Georgia rules are based on scientific research. I am so excited to talk about Georgia. At the University of Connecticut, Becca Stearns is the chief operating officer at the Corey Stringer Institute, a program named after a Minnesota Vikings player who died from heat stroke. Stearns says Georgia's rules have had a big impact because other states have used them as a model for their own rules. She says having more states adopt heat rules is urgent as climate change drives up temperatures and humidity. It's certainly a, a very relevant conversation in terms of maybe trying to act now before it becomes even more intense and we're seeing an uptick in the cases of heat illness. And experts underscore death from heat stroke is preventable, but teams have to be prepared. Hey, let's go. Cedar Grove's coach Adam says he checks in with his players and gives them longer than required breaks on hot days. They're kids, so you know, sometimes kids are just gonna try to toughen it out, but you gotta be smart. Life, he says, is more important than football. For NPR News, I'm Molly Samuel in Atlanta. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, two writers on the tricks they use to quiet the mind and tap the creative spirit. That's coming up next. Clouds persist tonight. Could be damp tonight with some passing showers. Down in the mid-60s, some strong winds around. Tomorrow, a mix of clouds and sunshine. Breezy again in the upper 70s to low 80s. Friday should be the first of three sunny and warmer days up around the mid to high 80s through Sunday. The score in Williamsport, Pennsylvania at the Little League World Series game between Middleborough squad and the team from Nolensville, Tennessee is still on hold right now because of lightning in the area. The score is 5-3 to three Tennessee. Game is in the fifth inning. Middleborough has been slowly chipping away at Tennessee's lead. The game goes six innings. Both teams continue in the competition after today's debut. This is WBUR. In Pinellas County, Florida, voters say rent and food costs are too high and wages are not keeping up. I'm licensed, like I'm working in a nursing field. I don't understand why we're making just as much as somebody at McDonald's in them type of places. 
We went to school for what we do. How might inflation influence their votes? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This summer, we've invited writers to talk with each other about what shapes their writing and their writing process, from gardening to basketball. Today, two writers with two very different approaches to getting words on the page. The challenge for Jacqueline Woodson is how to quiet her mind. Her books include The Day You Begin, Brown Girl Dreaming, and Red at the Bone. Jade Chang starts us off reflecting on what it felt like once her first novel, The Wings Versus the World, was published. It was like the inside of my brain was just a kind of like calm, dark, empty place. And I needed to refill it with things. Mm -hmm. I needed to input so much before I could actually start writing another book. And yeah, I, do you feel like that? And when you do, what do you input it with? Um, what do you put in there? I think the process is a little different for me because I'm mm. always inputting, right? I just feel like there's not, there's so much stuff in my head or from, from like mm. lyrics to bad 70s TV commercials to, mm-hmm. you know, bits and pieces about what's happening to, in the world to things my kids have said to parts of books mm. I've read. And, and it's just all garbled in there and comes out at different points. And I try to, so, and there are also all the stories I want to tell are in there Mm -hmm. and and trying to figure out what that story is and raking through all the the detritus to get to it is hard. And and I think one thing that I started doing during the pandemic was Mm -hmm. walking. Oh, And I I would walk four to six miles a day and got into Mm -hmm. the habit of that and just kind of clearing my head. If I was stuck, not able to write, I would go to someplace like Target and just walk around and touch stuff Mm -hmm. and not buy anything, but just like, just Mm -hmm. get something really bland into my head, like a red and white bullseye or something. And that got rid of all Uh the other stuff. But finding that story inside all of that, I think we shared that. It's like, where is that story when there's either the empty space that's the relief of having finished a book mm-hmm. or the garbled space that just has too much stuff to find the story hidden under the couch or something. Does a piece of art or a piece of music or something like that ever lead directly to something else? So I have a playlist mm-hmm. that um, it, it rotates a little bit depending on the era that I'm writing in, but I definitely need mm-hmm. music and I, I'll definitely be walking through the world and hear a song and think, this is sparking something. This is something I need to go mm-hmm. home and investigate. It's such an interesting question. Is that happening for you now? In a way, even more than an actual work of art, an actual piece of music, it's like a little snap of emotion that I mm. that either I feel when I'm taking something in or that I see depicted in a way that like I hadn't experienced before, you know? So- Give me an example. This is a very weird example, but a couple years ago, I ended up at Disneyland on a hundred degree day and it was the middle of the week. So there was almost nobody there. So then because of that, I went on my favorite roller coaster, Space Mountain, 
three times in a row. Just got on, did it, got off, walked all the way back around, went on again. And by the third time I felt honestly kind of transcendent. Like it felt like I had been on some long meditation retreat on a mountaintop. Like it just felt like my brain got to be in a whole different space. And I had never thought about the possibility of reaching that feeling in that kind of way. And I think it made me think about when people are reaching for a kind of transcendence that usually comes with meditation, mm-hmm. you know, what mm-hmm. is it that they're really searching for? And then that that is something that really comes into play in this new book that I'm writing. But I don't think I would have thought of it in that way if not for that experience. So that's wild. I've never been on Space Mountain. So I don't know <laughs> what that is like, but I can, listening to you talk about it, I can totally imagine how that can be a transformative experience. Everything from the heat to Disneyland without mm-hmm. its people to this ride mm-hmm. that you just let yourself go on and let go on. It's, it's so yes. amazing. I've never thought of that. Maybe I should try the cyclone. Because <laughs> I, I do think people are always, I mean, part of making art is always looking for a way to let go, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. you've taken so much and then you just want to let go. Mm-hmm. And how do you find that? And the fact that fear is the thing that stops so many people. You know, and mm-hmm. there's such a, a letting go of fear to even do something like get on that roller coaster, which is, which is what keeps me from getting on mm-hmm. it. And I think a lot about fear because I, I think I go yeah. out into the world and I see it when people talk about writing. I mean, I think mm-hmm. as writers, we mm-hmm. have to have a certain kind of fearlessness, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I mean, like the mm-hmm. way you see the world mm-hmm. is constantly mm-hmm. telling people the way you see the world is not the right way. The wor- way you see the world yeah. is not true. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. or your ideas that you have have no relevance to anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, historically, of course, for us as people of color, we've been told that and that's been represented in our right. literature yeah. or the lack of yeah. our literature in the world. Like for you, how did you kind of come into your fearlessness? audacity you know it was kind of I think for me it was people saying you can't and I don't like when I don't like Mm -hmm. to hear no I don't like to hear people say you can't um and Mm -hmm. and and I think growing up in a in a family where I was told Mm -hmm. often how amazing I was and then to go out into the world and Mm -hmm. see not see myself in it and think wait what's Mm -hmm. broken out there and and how can I fix it so that I'm there. But I did also have the foundational literature, right? I did have James Wallner. I did have Audre Lorde. I did have Rosa Gee. I did have Toni Morrison. I did have mm-hmm. Langston Hughes. And I did have all these people kind of telling me mm-hmm. something different from what the world was trying to show me. I know that helped. <laughs> yeah, that's so important. And, you know, I also am very lucky to have a family that always told me I was amazing. <laughs> I think as I get older, I realize that that's not the most common thing in the world. Mm. I think one of the things that I truly loved the most about being on book tour and talking to people is talking to people who said that reading the book made them feel seen in some way and, you know, made them feel like the lives that they had led were on the page. And Mm -hmm. I think just the kind of real gift of them telling me that felt like such a 
gift, you know, and is so, you know, what else do we have? But like a small connection mm -hmm. between people. That's kind of it. Jade Chang wrote The Wings Versus the World, speaking with Jacqueline Woodson. Her most recent book is The World Belonged to Us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's still kind of windy out there now. Lots of clouds, a few showers around the region through this evening and for the first part of the night tonight. Overnight lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy again in the upper 70s to low 80s. Friday should be the first of three sunny and warmer days, almost hot in fact. Temperatures in the mid to high 80s through Sunday. This is WBUR. A morning edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney lost her bid for re-election, but analysts say she's still got a political mission. She has said she will do whatever it takes to make sure Donald Trump does not get elected president again. Cheney's future and whether it includes a run for the White House coming up. It's Wednesday, August 17th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead in Oklahoma. Dozens of women are incarcerated under a new law that purports to protect children. The women did not abuse their kids, but they're serving more time than their partners who did. A Mother Jones investigation still ahead. A new law allots $280 billion for research and manufacturing semiconductor chips. The chip industry is enthusiastic, but says bringing chip making to the U.S. will be a long and complicated process. Wall Street stocks lost ground today. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge is set to decide whether to unseal the affidavit used to carry out a search warrant on former President Donald Trump's Florida estate, NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Justice Department's requested the records be kept under wraps while Trump is calling for them to be made public. The Justice Department says the disclosure of the documents could compromise its ongoing investigation into the former president's handling of classified documents. The department also claims that unsealing the affidavit could prevent witnesses from cooperating in the probe. Trump and his Republican allies are calling the search government overreach and demanding the immediate release of the documents. The judge in the case last week unsealed a search warrant and property receipt from the FBI search of Trump's estate. Agents removed more than a dozen boxes of documents from the property, including classified records. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, spent more than six hours inside an Atlanta courtroom today. He was testifying in front of a closed-door special grand jury looking into election interference. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler has more. A scrum of reporters and cameras welcomed Giuliani when he arrived at the Fulton County Courthouse around 8.30 a.m. Wednesday. He did not say much when he entered or when he left more than six hours later. The special grand jury is looking into efforts by Giuliani and other Trump allies to overturn Georgia's close 2020 presidential race. That effort ultimately failed, but an investigation might find they broke some laws in the process. Giuliani is a target of potential charges, as are the 16 Republicans who served as fake presidential electors. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Minutes from last month's Fed meeting show policymakers saw little evidence late last month inflationary pressures were easing and say they're prepared for further interest rate hikes at September's meeting. Though the amount of such a hike apparently remains up in the air. As of last month's meeting, Fed officials said while some parts of the economy, most notably housing, have begun slowing amid rising rates, the labor market remains strong. Retail sales, meanwhile, were flat last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Overall spending at stores and restaurants showed little change last month, but U.S. consumers are shifting where they spend. People shelled out less money at gas stations, for example, as fuel prices fell, and more money at furniture, electronics, and home improvement stores. Spending at supermarkets rose slightly last month, but not enough to keep pace with rising prices, suggesting people are leaving the store with less food in their carts. Spending at restaurants was also up by less than the rate of inflation. Stock in Target stores was down today after the discounter reported a big drop in quarterly earnings. Like other retailers, Target's been struggling to adjust to fast-changing consumer demand and slashing prices to get rid of unwanted inventory. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks fell. The Dow was down 171 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says he's open to major changes when it comes to the future of the MBTA. A state representative on Beacon Hill has suggested the state consider a federal takeover of the T, and that proposal has divided officials over how to resolve safety problems. WBUR's Chris Sitterick has more. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has called for a partnership between the MBTA and the Federal Transit Administration, but Moulton tells Radio Boston it may be time for something more drastic. Perhaps a federal takeover is the best option. I think every option should be on the table. There's no question that we can't just patch it up and continue pretending that nothing is wrong. Moulton says the T has had its chance to address safety issues and failed to do so. I don't have any confidence in, in the leadership and organization of the T right now, and I don't know why anyone else in Massachusetts should either. Moulton adds that railroads have been around for more than 100 years, and it's well known what it takes to keep the system up and running safely and efficiently. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Sidrick. A construction accident this afternoon is under investigation in Boston's Seaport District. Suffolk Construction says a piece of equipment fell off the exterior of a building it's working on. It landed on the roof of a vehicle on Summer Street. The driver was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Federal workplace safety investigators were called to respond. Suffolk has shut down the work site to conduct a review. A Somerville company has the green light to offer its gene therapy for a a rare blood disorder. Today, the Food and Drug Administration has cleared the treatment from Bluebird Bio for use. The gene therapy is a one-time treatment that would replace the current approach for beta thalassemia, which involves years of regular blood transfusions. And a nor'easter off our coast has failed to deliver much rain today for most of eastern Mass. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the dry spell continues.
Today's big ocean storm not providing any drought relief. The bottom line, just too much dry air in place. I was watching the radar and heavy rain over the ocean was literally evaporating as it tried to make westward progress over us. Obviously, we need every drop we can get at this point. Boston is in a deficit of just shy of 10 inches of precipitation for 2022. Now tonight, a passing rain shower is possible. Forecast low of 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny. High of 82, breezy with an isolated late-day shower, nothing substantial. And the weekend looks warm, dry, and more humid with highs in the mid-80s. Holding steady in Boston at 72 degrees now at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A key primary last night reaffirmed Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party and specifically on Wyoming. As expected, Republican Representative Liz Cheney lost her race in a landslide, defeated by a Trump-endorsed political newcomer, attorney Harriet Hageman. Of course, Cheney is not just any member of Congress. She came to office five years ago on a rocket trajectory as the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. Everything changed when she voted to impeach Trump after the January 6th insurrection. Republicans ousted her from leadership. Democrats welcomed her as vice chair of the House Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. Now, as she told NBC's Savannah Guthrie this morning, a 2024 presidential run is not out of the question. Are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but uh, but it is something that I uh, I'm thinking about, and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. So, what do last night's results say about the political future of the GOP and of Liz Cheney herself? Well, political journalist Jody Enda has been thinking and writing about this. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Cheney says she is starting a political organization focused on stopping Donald Trump from winning the White House again, and she has not ruled out running for president herself. But before we look to her future, can we take a step back? Describe how she was perceived as a politician prior to the insurrection. Well, Liz Cheney was a conservative's conservative. She voted with Donald Trump 93% of the time. She only has voted with President Biden 18% of the time. She's opposed to abortion rights. She's a very strong supporter of gun rights. She voted against strengthening the Voting Rights Act. She voted against reforming the police in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And like so many of her Republican colleagues, she wanted to repeal Obamacare. So she comes from the right wing, the conservative wing of the Republican Party, much as her father, Dick Cheney, did. And this is the first time she's really broken away from that mold. And yet that one break caused her to lose her race by nearly 40 points to a relative political unknown who had Trump's support. The former president wrote on his platform Truth Social that Cheney can, quote, finally disappear into the depths of political oblivion. But I take it most don't see that as likely to happen. How do you view her political future? Well, that would be in his dream. Uh, her dream is to make sure that Donald Trump never gets anywhere near the Oval Office again. And she seems determined to make that happen. But she can clearly do that as head of a think tank, as the leader of a political action committee. Can she do that as a politician herself if she does not have the strong support and backing 
of a political party. As you point out, she is one of the most conservative members of the House. She's not about to run for office as a Democrat. And the Republicans have all but disavowed her. Right. She's unlikely to win the Republican nomination, which is the first step that she would need to do to win the presidency. However, she could be a thorn in President Trump's side. Imagine for a moment if she's on the debate stage next to Trump. She's an excellent speaker. She has the facts on her side about the election, and he's easily flappable. Does that mean that she could win the nomination or the presidency? Highly unlikely. But she certainly could use that platform to try to knock him off his game. So if I understand what you're saying, it sounds like you believe she has a future in politics, if not a future as a politician per se. Oh, for sure. She said in her concession speech last night, freedom must not, cannot, will not die here. If we do not condemn the conspiracies and the lies, if we do not hold those responsible to account, we will be excusing this conduct and it will become a feature of all elections. America will never be the same. So she might not be a candidate, but she's certainly going to be a very high profile voice in our nation's conversation. A leader needs followers. Who is her base? That's a very good question. Her base for the fight against Trump are anti-Trump Republicans. Democrats and independents who don't want to see him run again. But right now, she is the darling of Democrats. She's a darling of people who don't want Trump in office again, and they will support her in her effort to block him from running or winning again. Let's talk more broadly about what last night's primaries say about the state of the Republican Party right now. After the insurrection, 10 House Republicans voted to impeach Trump, and only two of the 10 are going to be on the general election ballot in the fall. What does that say about the state of the GOP? Yeah, it's interesting, Ari, that the least populous state really is showing us what is happening to the Republican Party. This is Trump's party now. And no matter what people say about conservative values and policies, none of that matters if candidates are not loyal to Donald Trump. The, the people who, who either lost their uh, primaries or who chose not to run again in the face of Trump-endorsed candidates are just as conservative as any Republicans are, as Liz Cheney is, and in fact, probably more conservative in many ways than Donald Trump is. That has nothing to do with the politics of the Republican Party anymore. It's, it's a loyalty test to Donald Trump, and especially within Republican primaries where the most conservative members of the base vote, that's what matters. That's political journalist Jody Enda. She's also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a left of center think tank. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. The CHIPS Act, signed into law last week, could provide up to $280 billion for research and chip manufacturing in the U.S., so it can rely less on places like China and Taiwan. But experts warn this will be a long and complicated process. NPR's Emily Fang visited a chip factory in the U.S. to understand more. The first thing Adam Milton has me do when I get to Wolfspeed's gleaming new factory in upstate New York 
is cover my shoes. Yeah, so for all of our employees, we want to keep the salt, the mud, the nastiness of the Northeast outside and keep it away from our campus. Milton's an operations vice president who helped set up this $1.2 billion factory. By the end of this year, it will be shipping out silicon carbide wafers. That's the material that semiconductor chips are printed and etched onto. Then those chips go into our electric cars and industrial gadgets. We peek inside the clean room where Woolspeed makes its transparent wafers. Engineers and technicians in bunny suits covering everything from head, face to toe work in these perfectly regulated environments. That's not necessarily to protect the people. The people are already safe in this environment. It's to keep, you know, bodily particles and shedding of things, keep it away from the product. Once the factory opens for production at the end of this year, it will run around the clock. So when this gets up and running at 2 a.m., there are people in bunny suits working this place. There are people here 24-7, absolutely. Wolfspeed is a manufacturing company with technology the U.S. wants to stay in the U.S. That's part of what the CHIPS Act aims to do. The act appropriates about $80 billion now ready to go in the form of tax credits, incentives, and matching federal grants to chip makers if they build in the U.S. and not China. It then directs Congress to approve another $200 billion over the next five years for research. That matters because uh, you know, for years, the U.S. federal government invested more in R&D as a share of our GDP than any other country in the world. Now we've fallen to ninth. Stephen Azell is a vice president at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. It's a nonprofit research institute focused on technologies like the semiconductor space. China has criticized the CHIPS Act as a threat to free trade. Azell disagrees. You know, some have called that industrial subsidies. Our view of it is different. When you look around the world, uh, Korea, Taiwan, China, Israel, virtually all of these countries offer incentive packages whose intent is to defray, to some extent, the tens of billions of dollars it can cost to build a new fab. But building from scratch also takes time. Just to give you an example, Wolfspeed's process began in 2013. That's when the State University of New York's Polytechnic Institute helped fund an entire industrial campus. Milton says the state built the roads, water supply, and even a power substation. Chip making needs super stable energy supply with multiple backups, which New York State provided. Just about three miles north of here is a main power station for a lot of New York as well as the Northeast. And so it's actually got redundant feeds from Niagara Falls from nuclear energy coming from Canada, from other solar plants and wind turbines across the Northeast. Wolfspeed's New York factory is at 300 employees now, but they want to double that. Rex Felton, Global Operations VP at Wolfspeed, says hiring skilled technicians and engineers is a bottleneck, even with the Polytechnic Institute nearby providing lots of talent. Bolstering science and engineering education will help long term. Yeah, I think every company that does semiconductors today runs into that. We're starting relatively slow. We're going to grow very quickly. And I think it's going to continue to be something we're going to have to work on. One of the two bills that were combined to create the final CHIPS Act included immigration reform to lift green card caps for foreign born graduates and make it easier for highly skilled immigrants to stay. But that part didn't make it into the final law. Wolfspeed is also just one part of an extremely complex supply chain. There are companies that only design chips, others that make them, others that create the tools to etch and deposit materials on Wolfspeed's wafers, and finally, other companies still to test and package the finished chips. Here's Milton again. 
But one of the big drivers for our, our business going forward is the electrification of the automobile industry. And so with more and more companies seeing the benefit of going electric, they want to work with Wolfspeed. And some of the biggest car companies that are buying from Wolfspeed at the moment are Chinese. The point is not to make semiconductor chips all American, but to create the conditions whereby the most critical and advanced steps of the process are once again U.S. dominated. Emily Fang, NPR News, Marcy, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking business, the Dow snapped its five-day winning streak. It gave up a half percent, 172 points, to close at 33,980. S&P dropped nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 42.74. The Nasdaq lost one and a quarter percent to finish at 12,938. More shopping mall retail space likely will be converted into laboratory space in the area. Boston Business Journal reports that Boston-based New England development wants to turn more than half the third floor of the Cambridge side mall into life science space. The developer had planned to use the entire floor for office space, but it's amending its proposal before the Cambridge Planning Board. Life science facilities are also being developed in, among other places, three former Lord & Taylor department stores in three malls, Braintree, Natick, and Burlington. Business news on Marketplace starts in just about 10 minutes. It's 6:19. WBUR supporters include Federation for Children with Special Needs. Celebrate 50 years of a special education revolution, September 10th. FCSN.org slash gala 2022. And Fresh Grass Festival in the Berkshires, September 23rd through 25th. Gary Clark Jr., Old Crow Medicine Show, Tanya Tucker and more. Freshgrass.com slash WBUR. If you're looking for a staycation read, check out our new pop-up newsletter. It's filled with terrific suggestions that will transport you to the sun and the sand. Sign up now at wbur.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, windy, cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Should be windy once again. Temperatures in the upper 70s to low 80s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Carrie King is a mother of four serving a 30-year prison sentence in Oklahoma. If you ask her kids why she's locked up... It's because, like, I kind of know why she's in jail, but I know she's not supposed to be in there. Uh, she's in prison... Because I don't really know how to explain it. It's been hard for other grown-ups in their lives to explain it or understand it, too. But it comes down to a kind of law known as failure to protect. Carrie King said her ex-boyfriend beat her and her daughter in 2015. Her ex pled guilty to child abuse and neglect. But police charged King, too. They said she hadn't done enough to protect her child. 
So King wound up with a prison sentence 12 years longer than her exes. The separation is heartbreaking for her. I mostly call them, um, but I do occasionally write letters trying to, you know, just give them some advice and just show them that I love them more than anything, that no matter what, their mom loves them. (laughs) And she's not the only woman serving more time than her kid's alleged abuser in Oklahoma. Her story is laid out in a new investigation this month by reporter Samantha Michaels. She covers criminal justice for Mother Jones and joins me now. Welcome, Samantha. Thanks for having me. And we should note that we will discuss details about domestic violence and child abuse in our conversation. Samantha, how did you first find out about Carrie King and what's been happening to her and her family? I first found out about Carrie King back in 2019. I was reading the news and I started reading about another woman named Tondaleo Hall who had been sent to prison because her boyfriend had abused her children and she hadn't known about it. And she had gotten 30 years in prison uh, and he had gotten two years in jail. And it made national news because she was getting out of prison um, and I was outraged. And so I reached out to the ACLU of Oklahoma trying to learn more. And as I was talking with them, they told me that there actually were many, many other cases like this. And they started telling me about Carrie King. There is a short documentary that accompanies your story that includes interviews with King as well as her family. We heard from her kids earlier, but I'd like to play a little bit of what King said about the night that she tried and ultimately failed to stop her ex, John Purdy, from hurting her daughter. I feel like I did everything I could with what I had available to me. I didn't have a way to run away. I know I couldn't fight him. I tried to do that. So I I didn't see how I allowed him to hurt my child. That's just not what happened. Samantha, you have looked at hundreds of failure to protect cases. Is this a common refrain that you've observed? Yes, it's very common for um, the mother who was prosecuted for failure to protect to have also been a victim of domestic violence herself and to have, you know, tried her best to protect her kid, but, you know, to have been unsuccessful. You worked with the American Civil Liberties Union to find at least 15 cases where women were given longer sentences than partners convicted of hurting their kids. Could there be more cases that are going under the radar? Yes, it's likely that there are more cases that are going under the radar um, in Oklahoma and, frankly, across the country. Um, There aren't any national data sets to show how many women have been prosecuted for failure to protect. Um, And it's, it's really tricky, actually, to identify these cases, because a lot of times if you're looking at the charging documents, uh, the failure to protect case is labeled simply as child abuse or child neglect. So you would never know the details of the fact that the woman didn't do anything to hurt her child if you're just glancing at the court documents. You write that these sorts of laws are used to punish parents nearly every week and that an overwhelming number of those incarcerated are women. What have you heard from legal experts about why that's the case? It's basically sexism. Most of the legal experts that I talked with said that it comes down to a cultural expectation that women are responsible for what happens in the home. Uh, There's an expectation that they should be the moral center of the family that they should rein in the man's, you know, worst impulses. And 
that they should do whatever they can to protect their child, even if it means, you know, sacrificing themselves. During the course of your reporting, did you speak to any child welfare experts about why laws like these remain on the books in dozens of states? Yes. Most of the experts that I talked to said that there's a lot of political pressure for lawmakers. Lawmakers don't want to appear like they're being weak on child abuse cases. They don't want to make it seem like they're allowing parents to harm their children. And so it's really, really tough to amend these laws or shorten sentences for women. Let's talk now about other possible reforms and solutions. What is happening in other states that could possibly help women who find themselves in situations like the one that Carrie King did? Well, for the most part, attempts to reform these laws in other states haven't gotten a lot of traction. It just hasn't been a priority for lawmakers during the pandemic. And as we talked about, there's this political pressure to not appear weak on child abuse cases. However, there are things that can be done. New York actually recently passed a law that allows courts to go back and shorten the sentences of women who were thrown in prison for lots of different types of crimes that were caused because they were victims of domestic violence. So they retroactively can go back and shorten their sentence. Um, And other states are starting to look at similar laws, including Oklahoma. There are some activists and attorneys in Oklahoma who want to try to replicate New York's law. And so if that were successful down the line, it's possible that Carrie King and other women under similar circumstances might be able to apply for relief. I want to end by asking you again about Carrie King and how she's doing now. When you most recently spoke with her, what did she want people to understand about what has happened to her and what has happened to other women like her across the country? Carrie really wants people to understand that, first of all, she did not allow anyone to abuse her child and she did everything in her power to try to protect her child. She also wants people to understand that she also was a victim of abuse. Um, in recent phone calls that I've had with her, she's she's having a really tough time. Three of her children, after she went to prison, the state sent them to live with her ex-husband, a different man who had previously abused her. And the kids have been safe with him since then. But in the last few months, he was actually arrested um, for gun-related felonies, and he hasn't been convicted yet. But if he, if he is convicted, he might face jail time as well. So Carrie is just really, really worried about the safety of her kids, um, and she, she just wants to get out to be there for them. That's Samantha Michaels, a reporter for Mother Jones. Thank you so much for your reporting and for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds persist tonight, damp with some passing showers in the mid-60s, some strong winds tonight as well. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, breezy again, temperatures in the upper 70s to low 80s. Coming to City Space Thursday, August 25th, a live concert featuring Van Buren Records, an innovative hip-hop collection from Brockton. Tickets at WBUR.org events.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in applied business analytics, on campus or online. Learn the concepts, tools, and techniques used in the process of making informed, data-driven business decisions. Learn more at bu.edu slash met.